Welcome to our monthly podcast, where we attempt to summarise and unpick lots of juicy education content from the BMJ. We hope this helps with your continuing medical educational development. Today, we're going to talk about vitamin D and the prevention of disease in healthy people, aortic stenosis and a new way of creating guidelines, reflect on the experiences of patients consulting with learning difficulties and those who've experienced torture, and finally, hear about whether and how to safety net in those with low risk, but not no risk symptoms of cancer. I'm Helen MacDonald, GP and Acting Head of Education at the BMJ, and I'm joined by a surgeon, an internist and fellow GP, Jess, Reed, and Sophie. Introduce yourselves and let's get started. Why don't you tell us your full name and a few words about the type of work you do day to day when you're in clinical practice. Hi, my name's Sophie Cook. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and I also work as a GP, predominantly as a locum in North London. Reid? Hi, my name's Reid Samanek. I'm an internist uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And uh, most of the day I do uh, methodology work around guidelines. But uh, day to day I'm in the hospital seeing inpatients. And what kind of patients do you see, Reid? General general medicine inpatients. So... Everything that doesn't need surgery. Okay. That's a good intro into Jess. Jess, tell us about you. My name's Jess and me, and I'm a breast surgical registrar, but I'm currently on maternity leave. So I see both general surgical and breast-related uh, diseases. Brilliant. So let's get started. First, let's talk about vitamin D, because there has been an explosion of interest online about this uncertainties piece, which we commissioned uh, last summer. Um, and it's about what to advise healthy people about vitamin D supplementation. And this has been on my learning list um, in GP for a long time. And in the summer, Public Health England suggested expanding use of uh, this supplement among healthy people. Jess, you and I commissioned this piece back in the summer to try and unpick some of the evidence. Do you want to start by telling us what you learnt? Yeah, I was really interested by this piece, um, mainly by the fact that there seems so little evidence for sort of the general disease and that obviously there's a there's a lot of evidence that suggests that everyone who has severe vitamin D deficiency and should 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 be on vitamin D supplements but for other diseases and for musculoskeletal outcomes like falls and fractures there really doesn't seem to be that much evidence and yet there's all of these guidelines suggesting that the whole population should be on it over winter um, and that seems you know really very strange. Sophie, what did, what did you find reading the piece? Well, this is something that crops up quite a lot in, in primary care um, in the area that I'm in, uh, in terms of sort of people who are already on vitamin D, should they be on it, should they continue on it? Um, you know, you often see levels coming back and not knowing what to do with them. But again, I was sort of struck by the lack of evidence, really, that we're basing a lot of our decisions on. And it made me think about, you know, the information that we share with patients and perhaps that I need to do better in telling them about some of that uncertainty to help them make decisions about what they want to do. So maybe at this point it's worth pausing and thinking about the key messages that the the authors said, um, which I believe to be, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, that if you're talking about healthy people and you're talking about a vitamin D supplement on its own, that's without calcium, um, there is no good evidence that it prevents any adverse musculoskeletal outcomes such as fracture or falls. Um, And there is uncertainty about whether it prevents any other 
um, adverse health outcomes and it's been associated with numerous health health outcomes ranging from depression to dementia to um, cancers. And the final element was to say that in some healthy people, vitamin D supplementation had been shown to prevent some musculoskeletal outcomes, but that's only really when it's combined with calcium, um, where obviously it needs to be weighed against the harm, um, the small cardiovascular risks of harm in prescribing calcium. So Reid, you are a methodologist. Um, you probably read this with a slightly different hat mm. on to everyone else. So what, what did you think about um, think about it and about those take-home messages that I extracted? Do they, do they seem right to you? Well, I mean, I think it was fascinating the way that the authors summarized the evidence here. And, and, and it struck me because it's, you know, vitamin D is so pervasive and in society, everybody's talking about it, and you know, I would say at least half of my uh, uh, good friends and half of my patients are, are taking it with or without the instruction. Um, yeah, I, I think the, it, what's interesting is that the guidelines do disagree, and, and, and whether they disagree for legitimate reasons or not, um, that part I'm not as sure. But I think as long as we have the evidence here, and and it seems like we can be fairly certain that vitamin D alone doesn't. Uh, reduce musculoskeletal um, adverse effects, but you know it's associated with with vitamin D levels are associated with all sorts of different um, um, cancers and illnesses, and so you know I, there's obviously very low quality evidence that it actually prevents anything, and you see the associations with everything, but but you know it, I don't think that there's anything wrong. It doesn't seem to at least increase any adverse effects. If you if you want to take it on the off chance that it does make a small difference. You know, it, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me. That's fair enough. So is anyone going to... That's That would be your bottom line, Reid. That would be your advice to patients. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, think that, I think that all we can do is be honest. And, I, I, you know, I hope that the guidelines are... are um, you know, we're trying to... And we'll, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, hopefully. But we're Talk trying about to it less, now, Reid. Tell us. We're, you know, we're trying to be less prescriptive with guidelines. And, and that's where I think guidelines are moving because... You know the evidence is there, and and uh, you know is open for interpretation, but needs to be taken in the context of every patient's values and preferences. So maybe, so, so maybe move us on. Tell us about um, tell us about where guidelines are going because we've got a new series which you are leading on, and we're collaborating with you at BMJ, and it's called Rapid Recommendations. So um, tell us a bit about it. So I can't tell you how excited I am about this uh, this new collaboration with you guys. It's been uh, an absolutely um, thrilling start to it, and and hopefully uh, we have a long and, and exciting ways to go. Um, but this this all started because guidelines, uh, for a number of reasons, um, have have had problems with trustworthiness and have had problems with um, coming off as being too directive and too top down. And for that reason, a lot of people feel that they're uh, oftentimes out of touch. Um, the other thing is, is that they're too slow. And people are looking to these guidelines, as we see with the vitamin D example and with other examples, and they're waiting for the guidelines to, to for some direction about what to do. And that's, a, that's important. But, um, you know, it takes three or four years to create a guideline. So what's really great about this new BMJ Rapid Recommendation Series is that we are planning to take the most exciting thrilling topics, uh, controversial topics, summarize the evidence, get together a international expert panel, including patients and everybody, uh, every stakeholder, 
and and come up with a, a recommendation. Uh, but with that recommendation, we're going to come up with the values and preferences um, assessments, and we're going to talk to patients. And we're going to see what what people need and what people want from the guidelines. And so, hopefully, our guidelines are going to be less directive and more um, uh, um, helpful for each patient to make their own decision. And in terms of that helpfulness, some of it is about transparency. And to me, in developing these with you, it was really helpful to talk through these four pillars of of grade. Just touch for a moment on what grade is and about these four elements that you can see that feed into what a guideline recommendation is. Absolutely. So grade grade, um, is the sort of emerging consensus on how we rate the quality of evidence and how we move from evidence to recommendations. And guideline organizations around the world are using it. And it's great to have some consistency so we know what we're talking about. But this is a great opportunity for us uh, at the BMJ to show exactly how to do it properly and how to interpret some of this evidence in the context of it. So what grade looks at, we look at, you know, all these things that are really important to each individual patient when they're making a recommendation. And patients typically and clinicians want to know what are the magnitude of the benefits and harms, what is the quality of the evidence and something that they understand, um, you know, what are the resources and the practical issues and burdens, and then what are the values and preferences of the, um, of the actual patients and what's the uh, variation in the values and preferences. That's brilliant. And the first example we published, actually, it's a little while ago now, it was back in September, and it was around um, a a new paper that had come out looking at um, techniques of surgical intervention for people with severe aortic stenosis. So maybe we should come to Jess as our resident surgeon of the day and say, did you find the format of this new series and the information that you found in that package useful? Yeah, I did find it really useful. Um, I thought particularly the sort of infographic that you, you have alongside it is, is, is great because it's very visual and you can see that there's sort of strong and weak recommendations going down. And also I think it was very clear and allowed you to think, like when I'm going to be consulting patients, how am I going to phrase things to them? And And that is often really difficult to get when you just read guidelines because it sort of says, you know, point one to three says offer this, blah, blah, blah. But the way it's presented really gives you a format to reflect on how you're going to consult patients. Reid, talk us through what the headline um, findings were f- from that piece. So what we found is that there's, there was two trials or that in uh, one major trial that came out earlier in the year and that looked at uh, um, transcatheter um, aortic valve replacement, which is the replacement of the valve through the vein and leg, typically, or through open heart surgery. And um, the trials looked very promising for this new, um, less invasive approach, but the follow-up was only at two years. And so there's a key trade-off between um, maybe some improved short-term outcomes up to two years and uh, uh, really uncertainty as, uh, as it went on. Um, past two years. And so, you know, we felt that talking to the patients and talking to other people, that there was people that, you know, would really highly value that certainty in some improved outcomes short term, especially patients who had uh, uh, lower or shorter expected life expectancy. But younger patients who were expecting to live a long time, um, we think would value the, generally would value the uh, the uncertainty that comes with TAVI and might choose open heart surgery. 
So the trade-off is about the um, known increased risks with open-heart surgery um, versus the uncertainty about how this newer, minimally invasive technique, often known by shorthand as TAVI, how long that device will um, function well for um, in your body. So the older you are, the less likely... um, you're going to run into trouble with long-term functioning of the valve and the younger you are, the more likely you would be to hit against that. Is that, is that what you're saying, Reid? That's right. I mean, it, it strikes me that it's, it's still very early days in the, in the world of using TAPI. And so, um, you know, people who, who are, are willing to take a, a, a risk, really, with long-term outcomes, I think it's a very reasonable approach. But it, I think the, the, the whole idea with this is to, to um, quantify and show exactly where the uncertainties lie, and you can show and you can really weigh the options um, in terms of what your expected uh, reduction in death in the short term versus the uncertainty. And ultimately, that decision is is probably going to be different for everybody. Um, we ended up making weak recommendations between patients who are 65 years of age to 84 years of age, and that's the typical. Um, age range of these patients who who need TAVI. And so those patients, you know, we think generally would actually want to make their own decisions and it would de- really depend on their context. And so we gave some guidance for that as well. That's brilliant. Sorry, can I ask a quick question? And, and I was really interested why um, the transapical TAVI may increase mortality and stroke compared with a surgical approach. Is that is that just because of the evidence that's around? Is it is it weak or is that, why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is really uh, it was came as a surprise to us. So there's two there was came as a real surprise to us. There's two approaches to uh, doing TAVI. There's one through the vein in the leg, uh, which is transfemoral TAVI, and then there's the the alternate approach, which is transapical TAVI, where you put the probe in through the chest, through the apex of the heart, uh, uh, to the aortic valve. And it turns out that the evidence from randomized trials suggests that transapical TAVI probably um, is riskier and causes more harm, even short-term, compared to open-heart surgery. So for that reason, uh, which is a new finding from, from, the, from the group, for that reason, we think that patients who, who aren't candidates for the transfemoral TAVI, for the, for the preferred approach, probably mm-hmm. should all go to surgery. And I don't think that anybody would want to take um, um, this risk when there's such long-term uncertainty yeah. and relative certainty that it actually increases um, um, problems short-term. Really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. You know, it, it's it's something that the transapical TAVI, you know, maybe it has a role in patients who don't have any other options, and there are uh-huh. some patients like that. But um, um, really, it's it's uh, it was it was quite fascinating and interesting to find that. You see, to me as a GP, it just intuitively seems like a really bad idea to try and go in through someone's <laughs> chest. I mean, it just, it just sounds like such a bad idea. Um, so maybe we should just bring this down a level now. So, <laughs> Sophie, what um, what did you take away from this as a as a GP? Can it help us back in primary care? Well, I think so. I think, first of all, this is a very exciting series and I sort of share Reed's enthusiasm. It'll be really good to see, you know, what else is coming out in terms of guidelines. I like the fact that this isn't so prescriptive, you know, in terms of it sort of considers other factors and sort of looks at the person as a whole and, and gives the recommend recommendations along a spectrum. I liked the infographic a lot like Jess and I feel that as a GP, I won't be making these decisions, but I, you know, or I might be asked by a patient, you know, advice on on 
specialist information they might have been given in secondary care. And I do think that this is very helpful and that I could imagine myself sharing the infographic with them, you know, and looking at where they might come and discussing, you know, the benefits and the risks to them. So I'm not going to be making those decisions, but I certainly think that this type of information is helpful, you know, in terms of, of giving patients information that they can understand in a format that you can share with them directly. And you say you're not a specialist, but somewhat this month you are a specialist in aortic stenosis because (laughs) Sophie is our clinical reviews editor and she has also had a clinical update published just now which she's um, edited on aortic stenosis in general. So how did this piece on um, intervening in people with severe symptoms um, sort of interplay into the bigger picture of people with aortic stenosis what did you learn editing the the clinical update on that well interestingly I think Jess you were the person who sort of suggested initially that we commissioned something on this and you took this forward and found these authors and I think they've come up with a really good review on on sort of aortic stenosis as a whole because as you say the rapid recommendations apply to just a small subset of patients with aortic stenosis and it's incredibly common I mean their review quotes that uh, sort of one in four patients greater than 65 years will have some degree of aortic stenosis so, you know, in terms of the population we see, that's that's a lot of people coming into our GP surgeries. And it talks about the asymptomatic population as well as the symptomatic population, which is kind of covered by the rapid recommendations. And in terms of the fact I wasn't aware about as soon as you develop symptoms, your prognosis really drastically changes. And that's why it's really important that, you know, if we do... Our, identify people with murmurs we need to be thinking early about referring them on I mean there's no medical treatment but if someone is fit enough for surgery and would be willing to you know enter into a discussion about surgery we should really be getting them to a specialist for those discussions early to plan out what might happen um the authors did a really nice job I think of setting out what you should do in the workup, you know, in terms of a general practitioner, making sure that you get the basics, the echo, and also, you know, looking at the ECG. And I think the other thing that came across to me was because of this real distinction between symptomatic and asymptomatic patients, it's actually really important if we find people with symptoms, we need to quiz them about it because they may have subtle symptoms that they just attribute to, you know, just ageing and getting so older. what should we watch out for? Well, I think it's just making sure that you ask about things specifically, the breathlessness, the chest pain, you know, the symptoms on exertion. And ensuring that you know if if you do if you do pick up sort of subtle you know symptoms probably you need to be thinking about encouraging those patients to go into a specialist for discussion earlier than you would than you would the others um what else did i find from this <clears throat> yeah i mean i, I thought th- the, the bit about pregnancy was really interesting yeah yeah tell so- us more Jess, tell us, like, tell us more about it. You're probably this is much more much more applicable to you, sort of well, your yeah, time in <laughs> honed in on that. Yeah. Um, just that pre- people who are who are getting pregnant who have aortic stenosis, there are much increased risk of really severe clinical deterioration during their pregnancy, and so you should kind of think about that early rather than later. So if you have a patient with aortic stenosis, then you should think about getting them exercise testing Mm. before they get pregnant or very early on in their pregnancy so that you've got a baseline to work with, which I I never realised or thought about before. Mm. Mm. Reid, what about you? How how do you come across people with aortic stenosis? There must be lots and lots on your medical inpatient wards. <laughs> we certainly do see it. I, you know, I, what, what struck me about the article and about the aerosolist management in general is that there's, you know, we looked at two, two different in our recommendation, the TAVI versus open heart surgery. And we only look at the bioprosthetic valves. But patients who are really young um, uh, have the, the other decision to decide what type of valve and whether or not they want a mechanical valve. And so, you know, I think that would be a tough decision for 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 patients because you're weighing the 
the need for anticoagulation and maybe an increased risk of stroke with the mechanical valve versus needing more surgery and, and, and earlier breakdown from the bioprosthetic valve. And I can, you know, it must be a tough decision. Mm-hmm. The other thing I quite I thought was quite interesting about it was about the natural history of the oh, of yeah. the disease. Um, mm-hmm. You would know better than me, so because you edited, but it was about the inflammatory nature of it. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I thought that was also quite a sort of interesting, an interesting um, sort of concept in terms of explaining things to patients. I mean, when we talk about degeneration of the valve, they talked about it in terms of inflammation and it being similar to atherosclerosis. And I'm sure that patients in general are much more familiar with the sort of furring or wear and tear that, that occurs in the arteries with age. And and also somehow being able to make that that discussion sort of applicable to aortic stenosis, I wonder whether that might help in sort of explaining sort of the symptoms to patients. Um, yeah, and I and the other thing that I found quite interesting as well was in terms of follow up. Uh, I was I was interested because those are the patients that we're going to see in general practice who are going to come back to us. And with people who've got prosthetic valves, they 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 have to have echoes every year. But actually, people who have mechanical valves, you don't have to worry about them. And we often see people, or I see echo reports coming back, you know, for patients who've got valves, and it makes me think: Do they need them? Why are they being referred for them? And perhaps just thinking about that with patients and making them aware of what they do and they don't need afterwards, so they can sort of help in their follow up. I think we should focus a bit more on the patients now um, because patients were a really important part of rapid recommendations and I know you guys read from your end learnt so much about involving patients in guideline production and there are two articles this month which I thought were fantastic, um, both authored by patients, one um, a patient who has Down syndrome and the other um, a patient who has experienced torture and talking about their experiences of interacting with the healthcare system and and that in itself is interesting, but but what's most interesting to me is reading about some of the things that we might say um, that confuse or jar with patients. Um, so just taking the Down syndrome case first, Emily Smith has Down syndrome and is an expert by experience at the University of Nottingham, and after a visit to an emergency department, she was referred to her GP. Here she contrasts the interaction she had with the A&E doctor and her GP. Mm-hmm. And this article was written by um, Emily. Does anyone want to share what they learned reading it? I, I felt really sad reading it, actually, because reflecting on my own practice, I sort of realised that there have been so many times that I have just spoken to the carer. And I've tried to engage the person being cared for as well, but, but probably not enough. Um, and and that made me feel sad. Mm. I thought also it was interesting in terms of the, the I can't remember, the Emily Emily said that her experience as a paediatric patient seems to be slightly better than as an adult. And as, yeah. a, as, a, as a, you know, in, in a paediatric setting, doctors would approach her first, they'd always talk to her first. But actually as an adult, they didn't. And I found that, I found that really quite sad. I like the bit about the language because she, she writes in this piece, I'll, I'll quote it from the article, it says, I don't like it when they use upside down language. Positive results are bad and negative is good. Mm. And I didn't know that. Um, and there's another part later on in the piece where she says um, someone had, um, a doctor had said that they would refer her somewhere. And she said, she I didn't know. even know what refer meant. But another doctor explained it to her very clearly and said that it was like an introduction, not a mention. And it just made me so mm. conscious of, of, the yeah. re- of the words that you use, which you probably don't even... Think consider about. to be jargon, yeah. Or consider as confusing. I, I found that fascinating mm. for, for me. Reed, what did you think? 
No, it's it, it, what a brilliantly written article, and mm. Emily really needs to be commended for this. It's <clears> it's, it's a, what a great reminder too that, you know, you know, obviously we shouldn't be making assumptions about any of our patients, and I think that it's so easy to when you get busy in clinic and, you know, and, and in the hospital when there's we see it where you know and it's a good reminder for me where there's sick patients in bed and and um, you know maybe they're a little bit tired and drowsy and it's much easier oftentimes just to talk to the the person beside them and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's a good reminder that it's worth the effort in whatever context to make sure that you, you make every effort to include the patient so if we zoom on to the second um the second patient experience piece this one um is about when your patient is a survivor of torture in this article the patient explains what doctors can do to help refugees who've experienced torture so what did what did everyone learn from this I thought this was a, a great article um, and I took away quite a lot from this. I, f- I thought that, first of all, you know, the issue of trust is really important. And I think in a GP setting, you only have 10 minutes with a patient. And with patients who've been through experiences like this, it's going to take time for you to build up that rapport. I also think that it was very interesting the way that the patient said, you have to be very careful what you what you say. And in our questioning, we naturally ask about things that might have happened in the past. But in this context, we have to be very careful with that because it could open up a you know, a whole new discussion. And you have to work out, I think, in GP what you can feasibly deal with in 10 minutes without causing harm to the patient. Because I think once you've opened up those discussions, you need to realise the limits of what you can do and, and how helpful it is for them to, to revisit these things again. And I suppose how clinically relevant it is yeah. to what they're coming with. Exactly. Um, what they're coming with now. Jess and Reid, what did you think? Yeah, I was really struck by um, the the sentence about trusting officials and how it can be very difficult for patients to, who have suffered from torture to trust any kind of official. And, and us doctors, us really doctors are officials. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah. that just wasn't something that I thought about before. I found that really insightful. Yes, I mean, what a powerful couple of pieces here. And uh, I mean, really, it's, a, it's really eye-opening about the... You know what to do and how to be careful about how to approach these patients and and how there's a there's a comment here somewhere about how um, you know we might not come across with a sign that says that we're survivors of torture but um, you, you know it, it's a matter of being I guess aware of, of the possibility of these things um, it, you know it reminds me of uh, with some of the HIV patients that I see and, and I've done some research on is. Um, uh, uh, some, done some research on domestic violence and survivors of domestic violence and there's a lot of parallels here where um, the trust with the caregivers is the most important part and, and oftentimes empathizing and listening is, is the, at least in that context, probably the most valuable intervention that you can, you can offer um, in following up and listening. And so um, it's it's really powerful stuff, and it goes to show you that sometimes the medicine is the last thing that that the, the mm-hmm. last thing that's important to a patient. And there's so many other things going on. There's so much more important. Brilliant. So finally, we've saved a really chunky one for last here. Um, cancer is always incredibly difficult and it doesn't matter where you work in medicine. It's a differential that is always on your radar and it's such an emotive area. And recently we've had an uncertainties piece um, and I think it's really worth labouring the point that this is uncertain um, and we really are at the limits of our scientific knowledge here. And it's about the fact that we are not certain how to 
pick out which people with low risk but not no risk of cancer have symptoms which will go on and be cancer. Um, and we do this thing called safety netting, um, you know, telling somebody if X, Y or Z happens, come back and we'll have another think. But we don't have very good evidence that it works and we don't have very good information on how to do it. And although this article takes a very primary care view, I felt, Jess and Reid, that this this must be more broadly applicable. Um, does anyone want to say anything about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting from a secondary point of view. You know, we see patients a lot in sort of two-week wait clinics um, and about the qualitative evidence that, that patients who are later diagnosed with cancer have kind of felt over-reassured by negative test results which is obviously what they get in, in, in your two-week wait clinics in your secondary care. And then they feel kind of under-supported by their healthcare teams. And so then they decide not to consult if, they, if they've got persistent symptoms or new alarm symptoms. And I found that really interesting because at the end of your consultation, you know, that you, particularly when you've had a negative, say, colonoscopy or something, and you say, okay, well, you know, if you get these, these and these symptoms, then come back. But the fact that, you know, you, you can't balance that because even if you're saying come back with these new alarm systems, just the fact that they've had a negative test result means that they're unlikely to come back. And, and balancing that and understanding that, I, think, I thought was really interesting. And I'm not sure where the research should go in that sense. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. The article, the article was really well written and had a, a, I really like the, the very key and, and um, recommendations that were easy to use from that. They have a nice infographic uh, that the authors and, and you folks put together, and, and it has key information that you often think about. You know, check patients' contact details to make sure they're up to date. Don't assume it. Have a process for follow up. Um, um, you know, make if, uh, call them. Make sure that they they uh, come back. And so it, it was really it was really nice the way it was written. I guess from a GP perspective. I I found this interesting because it gave you a bit of headspace to think that actually in a lot of consultations with vague symptoms, you are safety netting. And one of the most important things that I took from this piece is that although that's what you're doing in your head, I very rarely express that mm. to patients, yeah. I think. Like I, I don't think I say to somebody, um, at the moment, I don't think your symptoms are suggestive of cancer, but if these following things happen, they might be. Um, and so I'd like you to come back in and talk about that. If they do, you you tend to be a bit more loose in how you say it, or, or I certainly have been a mm. bit more loose than that in how I've phrased things before. I think the other thing is to understand that there are things that you do as the clinician, um, but there are other things going on that affect how people respond to safety netting. And some of that, as Reid mentioned, is in your actual healthcare setup. Do you have good contact details for your patients? Do you have good systems for following up results? Um, do you have good systems for recalling patients if you actually wanted to actively follow up and they don't come? Um, and finally, I think there was a whole section on sort of handing back responsibility for essentially what is self-monitoring to patients um, and and just so much uncertainty at every single level about about how to do this well. Um, and, and there is this helpful infographic at the end where, where um, the authors um, have attempted to summarise what is known and, and built on some Delphi and best practice um, 
statements mm. to do that. Um, but it's it's incredibly difficult. As well as the infographic, the part that I really liked was in box three, they have suggestions on how to make safety netting more effective. And what I like about this is it sort of translates into what you could imagine yourself saying, which is to say to the patient, I would expect the type of symptoms that you have got to last for X amount of time. So to give a time limit, to describe any specific warning signs or symptoms that you would want them to keep an eye out for and not imagine that they might imagine what they are. So you might say, I suppose for your example, just like if you notice blood um, when you go to the loo, that yeah. kind of thing, um, to give very specific information about when and sort of how to reconsult, sort of specifying to them if you want to get the responsibility back to them, if some of this happens to you, then I would ask you to make another appointment because I'm not going to send you on as a matter of routine. And I guess if the working diagnosis that you have, which in general practice is so common, is uncertain, then to explain that uncertainty to the patient um, and, the, and the reasons for that uncertainty, including the investigations and particularly if watchful waiting is a strategy to explain that that is a strategy or that whatever you're giving them to try and manage a problem is a strategy. And if that doesn't work, then we would sort of view that as a potential warning sign that things might not be um, well. Um, and to consider writing all that down because that's a lot of information yeah. to try and retain and take away. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we we maybe starting to over, over rely on our test results. And, and, you know, one of the comments was be alert to the possibility of a false negative test result, you know, and, and be aware of what the what the tests um, characteristics are what what is the sensitivity of that test is it is it lower and, and is there a possibility that that it is a false negative um, uh, you know I, I think that that's probably overlooked and you know the other thing is mistakes happen and mislabeling and other things happen all the time so retesting and rethinking all these things was a great lesson so we're almost at the end of our roundup for this month let's just go round and say one thing that we learned you know, the, the thing that struck me most was was Emily's beautiful uh, and well-written uh, article about her experiences. And it just, it's what a great reminder to um, look to your patient, speak to your patient and ask mm. them what they want and, and really uh, leave the decisions up to them. It, it, was, it was a beautifully written article. Jess? Yeah, I have to agree. I think yeah. that um, just putting in the extra effort <laughs> regardless of how busy you are um, and how stressful things can sometimes get when you're on call to make sure that you're explaining things really clearly and thinking about how things sound from the patient's point of view when they've got learning difficulties is, is key. You know, the patient's inputs here, the, the, the stories um, from Emily and from Kalbasia, both sort of suggest that we are very busy, especially in you know general practice when we've got only 10 minutes. And in both of these, I think communication is key, isn't it, in all of these situations. And actually, sometimes we just need to be aware that we might need to take a bit more time and build that trust um, and try you know try not to, to rush through as we often do. All of that just uh, sort of makes me think of especially the uh, researchers. And I was uh, involving patients in research as well. And I think that it's related and that we're, we're, you know, we're doing this for the patients. And I was so skeptical uh, initially that, that including patients in research would be difficult and, and uh, time consuming and w it wouldn't be helpful. But after uh, my first experience, really uh, including patients at, at all levels of and, and from the very start of this research project and this guideline project, I can't say how much of a difference they've made and how 
how, how much better the products are at the end of the day. So I really want to encourage all the researchers out there to, to reach out and give it a shot because it's a lot easier than you think. Well, that seems like a good place to end because talking to patients seems to be becoming a theme of these podcasts. Thanks, Jess Reed and Sophie, for joining us and to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, let us know. Our back catalogue is on SoundCloud and you can subscribe on iTunes. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.